right, well, good evening. Excellent, yes. Um, today, uh, we're going to be looking at the, the idea of love matters. Uh, now, there are actually quite a few different words for love in uh, Hebrew, uh, each specifying uh, something slightly different, but there's one particular one I'm going to be focusing on today because I believe it applies to us and what we're supposed to do. So, not so much hesed, the love of God, uh, not so much some of the other loves, but there's a very particular one I want to focus on today and through one particular verse. Like last week when we focused in on one verse and then looked at a lot of the words to really help it make sense, I want to do the same again tonight. I want to look at one key verse, uh, arguably the most important verse in the Bible. You can have that argument with me later on. <laughs> but certainly uh, I've got some good grounds for saying that. So my, my idea tonight really uh, is actually only to have four words tonight. We'll, we'll make it up later on, don't worry. Uh, but four words tonight, um, which will come at the end of a rather lengthy introduction to really talk about why these words matter. So that's my plan for this evening. So let me start it like this. Uh, it has sometimes been said that the Old Testament is like the foundations of a house, and the New Testament is the structure placed upon it, the house, uh, as it were. Now, have any, have any of you ever heard that expression before? Some of you, so some of you are nodding, uh, some quite confidently, some less so. But uh, you know, this is the idea. You know, the, 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 the Old Testament is the foundation. Well, that kind of makes sense uh, to, to some extent. Um, you know, the house can only ever be built in that shape, barring an extension or con- conservatory, I suppose. But you know, generally speaking, the house is, is in that shape, and so the idea is, well, there's your foundations, and then uh, you know, the New Testament gets built upon it. There you go, some lovely foundations. Now, I'm a biased Old Testament kind of guy. You've always got to bear that in mind, okay? Every time I'm speaking, you've got to bear in mind, I'm utterly biased. Uh, I'm sorry, I kind of thought this analogy was not quite right. I mean, it's good, I like it, but it's not quite enough. And so I've, I've changed it slightly. You see, I would suggest that the Old Testament <laughs> is the entire house. The New Testament functions as the wallpaper, the carpets, the lights, the kitchen, the bathroom, the running water, the central heating. Now, that might sound at first to be quite disparaging of the New Testament, so I do hope that you'll give me a chance to recover. You see, I am suggesting that the Old Testament is the foundations and the house, it's the roof, it's the windows, and the New Testament uh, is essentially the soft furnishing. Now... Uh, there is an importance in the idea of the New Testament uh, bringing light into that house, so bear with me. <coughs> Excuse me. You see, I actually think that what we have uh, is that the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, are really your foundation. And the rest of the house is the rest of the Old Testament, the writings and the prophets. They are your walls and everything else. And everything in the New Testament uh, relies on it. You know, the, the wallpaper is hanging on the wall. Without the Old Testament, it's just lying there, getting wet <laughs> outside somewhere. It's just a pile of furnishings. And so I think that, you know, when the Old Testament establishes a floor, the Gospels, the letters, there's a carpet on the floor, you know, that unseen support very often that every step is actually standing on. And I do believe that the New Testament is like the light bulb, bringing light to what may have been obscure. So I do believe that the Old Testament is the house. And here's the important bit, but the New Testament makes it into a home. And the Old Testament provides all the structure that is there, but in order to actually live, you need the New Testament. 
And is that difference between having a house and having a home? And so it's not really disparaging. I wanted to try and show just how interdependent these two books actually are. Um, it's not enough simply to have this, this idea of this unseen foundation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is like the entire house, but you wouldn't want to live in there. But the New Testament, with it, it makes a home. And, and you know, apart from the fact that I obviously clearly had a, a, slightly, a slight issue with the original analogy, uh, there, there's a reason that I'm sharing this kind of at the outset. You see, tonight we're going to be looking at the Shema, which is widely recognized as being the most important part of the Torah. Uh, the most important part of those foundations. I suppose you could say this is that initial piece of work that goes into finally building a home. Uh, the Shema, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, I say, is, is very often considered to be the most important text in the Bible. It certainly is the most important when it comes to our response to God. I mean, Jesus thought so. So I'm always quite happy to side with him on these sorts of matters. Uh, he cites it as, as a summation of the Torah, the summation of the first five books of the Bible. And bearing in mind that every other book is based on that. You can see why I think he can say arguably it's the most important verse in the Bible. Uh, and he, he quotes it quite clearly, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's the Deuteronomy 6.5 version. Uh, the four words underlined are the four words that we're going to be looking at tonight. And you have love, heart, soul, and might. Now, when, uh, when Jesus quotes this, he's not just plucking an obscure text, as it were. He's not just finding a, a text and people thinking, oh yeah, I remember that. This was already the central text in the religion of all the people that were listening to him. It was the text that was said first thing in the morning and last thing at night. It was the text that was whispered into the ear of a newborn child. It was a text that you were expected to learn first. It was a text that people would write on their doors. It was a text that people would actually write out onto a scroll, fold it all up, and wear, either on their forehead or on their arm sometimes. It was the text. So when they say to him, what's the greatest commandment, he turns to them, and it's like, you already know <laughs> what it is. And he quotes it to them. And you can just imagine going, oh yeah, right enough. <laughs> that is indeed uh, the core of everything that we are called to be. And I want you to bear in mind, this is, this is the foundation for the Torah. This is what we call uh, the law. Uh, and, and, and one of the problems is when we think of the law, we think that in order to please God, we have a checklist of things to do. And if we can just tick them all off, then we'll be okay in front of God. That was never the purpose. That was never the design. This is the beating heart of the law. This is the beating heart of the whole of the Bible, as far as we're concerned. This text says that God loves us, and we are to respond in love. That's the purpose. Now, God, of course, loves us with an unbreakable love. We are called to love him back, uh, love in action, and we are to entrust him with our hearts. Now, um, the Shema comes from the Hebrew to hear. It's a little bit more than that, as you'll appreciate. Any of you who have been here uh, previously will appreciate that the words tend to mean quite a lot. Shema, in a very, particularly in this context, it literally means to value the speaker to such a degree that you are really listening. And you're listening to such a degree that those words really go in. Uh, and they go deep down inside and they change you. Those words change you from the inside 
and therefore everything that you do is different. And how do you translate that? <laughs> you know, just to, we'll just put in listen, I will put in listen, I'll be fine. You know, uh, sometimes we, we know it, it, Shema is translated as obey. And, and, and that, that, that is, I'm not, not going to say the travesty. <laughs> I mean, it, it kind of is. I mean, because it's not just obey, because you might obey out of fear. Uh, you might obey because you think, well, I'll get a good reward out of it. You know, I might, I might please somebody. But to Shema is about a value. It's about a love. It's about a willingness to be changed from the inside. What I love about it is, is that, you know, if you obey, that's basically, you know, you making sure you, you, you work hard enough until you finally get everything done, you know, and in your own strength you manage to tick all the boxes. Whereas to Shema is to recognize, no, he needs to change me. If I have any chance of living up to any of this, he needs to change me instead. Which actually fits the scripture an awful lot better. And so we have the Shema. Uh, so it's not passive. It's not a passive thing. You are to, to actively imbibe the words. Um, and so, you know, if you're to really narrow it down, I suppose it's hear and be inspired to do. I suppose. And the whole of the Shema is quite a few uh, verses long, starting in verse 4. It starts with this. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. <coughs> so the absolute sovereignty of God uh, is there. He is the only one, is basically what it's saying. It's not teaching that there is only one God, um, that that's found elsewhere. It's really trying to say he is the only one. Uh, and every part of the Bible uh, teaches us this lesson. If you look through the Old Testament, you see this lesson over and over again. In the beginning, God. <laughs> it's quite straightforward, really. Uh, the beginning of wisdom? No. Yep, every God. <laughs> you know, in God first, God only, is repeated over and over and over again. And so here, uh, God is one. But it's not just simply that he is God. Yahweh, that personal relationship name, is used twice. Again, it's not just simply, oh no, he, he, he knows what's best, he's way up there somewhere. This is someone who wants to be in relationship with us. That powerful relationship name, repeated twice. That is who you are letting into your heart. Uh, that is who you're letting in to see you changed. You can trust him. You can know about him. He's going to track history. You, know, you can read about him in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, even before we get here. We can know who he is, which is part of the, the wonder of the name. So, the foundation to what it means to be the people of God does not hinge on keeping enough rules to please him or a completed checklist. From the very beginning, the people of God have this relationship based on love. He first loves us, and we're to reciprocate. We're called to love. We are called to have his words in our heart. That's very literally what it says. And these words that I uh, sometimes say command, but I suppose it, more accurately I commission or, or trust you with and trust you with that uh, today shall be on your heart. That's the core of the Old Testament. I believe that's the core of the Bible. I think that is the core of what we are called to be. A people whose hearts are changed because God speaks and does something in them. Now, what follows 
<coughs> verse 6, as you'll appreciate, is verse 7. And you get this wonderful Hebraic hyperbole um, uh, in order to, to try and make, make the point. Let me read this to you first. Uh, you shall teach them diligently to your children, uh, that's these words that we just mentioned, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets, so come back to that, between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's how important these words are, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. Um, the Old Testament um, likes using uh, hyperbole to make uh, a point. Uh, so this verse 5 uh, is, is, is unbelievably important. That's what we're going to get in uh, here. Uh, so we have um, this idea of a multi-generational truth. It's for every generation. You teach them to your children because it's not just to you. This is supposed to be the case forever. It's not something that's restricted to, to a single group of people in a desert. It is a timeless, universal truth. Uh, and every generation of the people of God is supposed to have access to this beating heart of what it's all about. I do like, though, how this is written. Now, Hebrew very often will put two extremes uh, right next to, to each other. Uh, so, um, Psalm 139, verse 8, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there also. Because the two extremes, heaven and Sheol. Um, uh, morning and evening, uh, very often in the Psalms, uh, Psalm 55, verse 17, uh, evening and morning and noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. You know, so you get this kind of idea of the, of the two ends, as it were, of something. By saying that there's a certain action, uh, you know, the, the reminder of these words, should be done at the two extremes, it's saying it should be done at every point. Uh, if that makes sense. You know, when we say that, that if I go to the heights, God is there, and I go to the depths, God is there, it's saying that God is also everywhere in between. <laughs> Not just simply point A and point B. And so in Deuteronomy 6, all of these examples are trying to say that these words are to exist. Not just when you're sitting in your house. Not just when you are walking. But as we take it from there... What this says is that these words, this beating heart that we're looking at tonight in verse 5, is for every generation. It's to be done in the comfort of your home and when you're out of your home. So, everywhere. It is to be central when you go to bed and when you get up. So, you know, the, the, the beginning and end of a day and all in between. So, in other words, all time. It says, you know, on your hand, that's all that you do, uh, before your eyes, all of your thoughts, on the entrance of your home and your gates, which is a public declaration and a private reminder that every time you leave or enter the property, this is supposed to be the beating heart of who you are. That's what all of these extremes mean. That's what it means. Verse 5, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and might, governs how you live, publicly, privately, in regard to everyone, at all times, in all places, and for all generations. That's the meaning of these verses. Uh, of course, that led to the, the Jewish custom of the Medusa, uh, uh, an outward observance of this command, whereby scrolls um, of this text uh, would be written out, uh, rolled up uh, usually, and worn on the hand or on the forehead, because it mentions the hand and between your eyes, the idea of frontlets. Um, it's not meant as a literal requirement. Um, Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 20 uh, with the Passover. Same with Exodus 13, 15 to 16. Uh, let me read the, the Exodus one. 
So when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, Yahweh killed all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrificed to Yahweh all the males that first opened the womb, uh, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between the eyes, for by a strong hand Yahweh brought us out of Egypt. So very similar phraseology to the, the frontlets and hand. And quite frankly, uh, there, quite obviously, it's the idea that in all that we do, in all that we think from this moment, we are to remember this great rescue by God. Not that you would write out something and, and, and wear it, uh, as it were. So that's the build-up. <laughs> that's the context of the text, as it were, around verse 5. And I've, I've tried to, to show from the text how unbelievably important it not only was, but is uh, to each and every one of us uh, who would love God. So, how do we respond to the love of God? Now, last week we looked at a verse, and I used lots of different translations, and they were quite different. I felt there was a fair amount of variety in how we translated it. Um, as I often say, uh, if the translations are different, it's because the text is difficult. <laughs> it points to the fact that this is not easy. This week, however, uh, in order to be uh, slightly different, let me see. Oh, sorry. I'm falling behind myself. I do apologize. Uh, I've tried to, use, to show these texts, and uh, here we have uh, the good news and NIV, word for word the same. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. ESV or New King James. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then just for fun, I put the message in as well. Uh, love God, your God, with your whole heart. Love him with all that is in you. Love him with all you've got. I actually like that. I'll be entirely honest. Like, ah, pretty good. Um, yeah. But did you see that, that essentially there's actually quite a lot of, of, of agreement? You know, that there's that same uh, difficulty, as it were. We do seem to have a fair amount of, of, uh, of agreement uh, amongst the texts. Now, we may have a little bit of variety in Moed, uh, the strength or might or all that you've got, but fundamentally this idea of loving the Lord of God with your heart and your soul, at least, is usually fairly consistent. However, um, let me just point out that at least here we've got the name of God retained, that, that's, that's quite important um, as well. But what I find really interesting is the Orthodox Jewish Bible. Now the Orthodox Jewish Bible is an English translation. Now you might not believe me based on what's on this slide, but it is an English translation. <laughs> and what happens is, every now and again they recognise that there is a word that does not fit into English. It just, just doesn't fit. Now, most of the time they keep the, 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 na the name of God and the titles of God, they, they keep them in. But every now and again there is a word that just doesn't work in English. And these guys know what they're doing. <laughs> you know? And what I love about this is it comes to this verse and the whole thing just seems to collapse. <laughs> and you shall love. And it's just like, oh, no, no, no. Uh, Hashem, the name. You know, and as you can see, it just sort of just... They cannot put it into English. And that's a bit of a warning sign uh, for us. Because up until that point, it looks quite simple, quite straightforward. But to be honest, the people who really know what they're doing thought, no, I'm not touching that. And this is why. This is actually what it says, uh, uh, to be fair. Um, 
שמה ישראל, יחווה אלוהינו, יחווה אחד, וחפת את יחווה אלוהיקה, בקר לבבקה, ובקר נפשקה, ובקר מודיקה. והיו הדברים האלה אשר הנוקי מסבקה היום על לבקה. That's what it actually says. Yeah, there's a reason I do that, okay? It's not just an opportunity to actually just do some Hebrew like that. There's a reason, because uh, no, we do need to stop every and again saying, no, hang on a minute. This is what it actually says. Now, I'm making that a big emphasis just now, hence the reading out in Hebrew, hence the, 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 the showing it in Hebrew. I'm making this a big deal because what we tend to do when we come to this text is we come with a whole lot of baggage. We come with a whole lot of, of cultural stuff that we come to this text, and most of the time we're not even aware uh, particularly if it's like a, a church tradition or church culture, we're unaware. So I need to, at this moment, say, this is what the text says. And so hopefully by the end of this evening, we will have a greater appreciation of what is actually meant when it says, Ahev, for, for love. Levav, for heart. Nefesh, which they have a soul, a meod, uh, we often render as might. Cool. So here we go. And I'm glad you're sitting down for this. <laughs> We're going to start off with a, a hev or a hev. You get two versions that I love. Uh, now, I should point out that, you know, as I've said at the very, very beginning, there are a number of different Hebrew words for love. Um, as as I, I, I often say, um, uh, I think that, that we, we sort of shortchange ourselves because in English we only have the one word for love. And the way that I like to articulate that, to describe that, uh, for those who haven't heard me talk about this before, is that, you know, I, I love my wife. And I love my children. And I love biscuits. <laughs> and the idea that we can use the same word for those three seems ludicrous. I mean, clearly biscuits is a very strong love indeed, but... <laughs> but, I mean, surely we should not be using the same word for all three. And Hebrew doesn't. Hebrew uses, generally speaking, unless it's wanting to, 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 to play around it, it uses different words to describe uh, different forms of love. Um, we've got terms like, uh, like dod, um, which I've got there. Um, you know, even that has, has a lot of a variety of uses. Uh, it usually means uh, how you love um, a relative, although nearly all the time it talks about the, the, the love you have for an uncle. It's quite specific, uh, <laughs> to be fair. Um, it, does, it is used for that, but it is actually more often used to describe the close relationship you can have with people other than a spouse, because that requires a different word. It's sometimes used to describe the relationship with a future spouse, so the idea of who you're engaged with, because they're not your, your spouse yet. If often, often it can be rendered, though it could be a lover, the one who gives me kisses. Uh, you know, there's, there's lots of different ways in which we can describe it. So uh, Proverbs 7:18 and Song of Songs 1 and 2, the idea of the, of the lover, uh, as it were. Literally, what the word means is, it means to boil over. Yeah, that's what it literally means. A love that boils over, which actually makes sense of that sort of early infatuation with the other, the one that will become your spouse. You know, that, that you're kind of boiling over, as it were, in that uh, excited love for the other. Now, some of you will remember I also mentioned an uncle. <laughs> and the idea in there is that you love your father so much that it kind of boils over to incorporate even his brother. 
That's, that's the idea, you see what I mean? And so, it's, it's the idea of a love which goes beyond whoever you're really aiming it at. A love which is not restricted, I, I guess, uh, would be the way we would think about it. But uh, it's quite a lot of fun in Hebrew and how things work out. And sometimes you're thinking, how does that work? Oh, all right, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's sometimes quite a lot of fun. Um, there's a negative sense to dod. Uh, the love that boils over, that, that should have been restricted. So, um, adultery. Uh, this idea of the love should have been like this, but it's boiled over. That love that should have been for one person, you know, the spouse, has boiled over into uh, an infatuation with someone that shouldn't have been. So there's a negative sense to that word as well. However, specifically, when we are using Deuteronomy 6.5 to act as a thread for my thinking tonight, uh, the term is ahead. That is the, the love that we were really focusing on uh, just now. It occurs 212 times, although if you include the feminine version, Aheba, you have another 36 uses of the term. So it's quite a common word. Now, Aheb is used to describe the most profound loves in our life. The greatest love that you can imagine is Aheb. And so we do have a variety of contexts. We have the love of parents for children. Uh, Genesis 22 verse 2 talks of the love that Abraham has for Isaac, that son of his, that incredibly precious son, the one that he's waited decades for. And it talks about this incredible love that he has in the context of him having to try and give him up when he thinks he has to sacrifice him. That precious child. And Aheb is used in that context because Abraham loves that child, but he loves him even more thinking he's going to have to lose him. It's like the, the greatest love he can possibly imagine. I mean, Abraham had devoted his life. His entire past had been devoted to God, and now his entire future is set to be taken. And at that moment, he said to Aheb, his son. Other examples would include the love of Isaac and Rebekah, uh, for Esau and Jacob in uh, Genesis 25 verse 28. The love of Jacob for Joseph, you know, that, that favourite son of his, uh, above all the other brothers. So uh, Genesis 37 verse 3 um, and verse 4, uh, chapter 44 verse 20. You have this, 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 this extreme love, if you know what I mean. And so uh, that, that incredible love of a parent for a child. And that is one of the greatest loves a human being is capable of. We don't always get it right, and there are plenty of examples of going wrong. But we can see how that might be one of the greatest loves a human may actually uh, experience. We also have the love for a spouse. I'd actually say this is the most common use of the term. Um, and we have the, the Jewish archetype for love, uh, Isaac and Rebecca. We have the love of Jacob for Rachel. Uh, we have the desire of Leah for her husband to love her. So uh, Leah, obviously the, 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 the uglier uh, sister, uh, the one with bad eyesight, um, uh, who is foisted on her husband, who is not loved by her husband, she uh, plots and she, she dreams that one day he might have her. Uh, but he does not. It's, it's a particularly sad use. Um, interestingly, it's in the attitude of Shechem for Dinah, who's willing to give anything in order to have her hand in marriage. Uh, and there's plenty uh, of, of other texts. Um, it is a love that cannot be compared to any other. 
Um, I, I, I like the, the, the Proverbs one. Uh, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely dear, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her head. Uh, that, that, that reaches right into the whole Jewish uh, uh, Hebraic understanding of what marriage is. Uh, the idea of the, uh, as God says, the not quite opposite one. Um, it's tricky, it sounds complicated, but I love that description. Um, uh, that's God's description of the wife from the perspective of a man, the not quite opposite one. <laughs> I, think, I think that's brilliant. <laughs> I think that just hits the nail right on the head. Um, but the idea, of course, is that there is two halves of one piece, of one whole. And so the two of them come together to make one, uh, as it were. Uh, the Hebrew uh, is, is, again, a little bit more than, than the English, as you, you will appreciate. Uh, but in English we say, you know, the, the man will leave his, his mother and his father. They, they will cling together and they will become one. The Hebrew actually says uh, that they will be always becoming one. That's brilliant. Because I recognise that as a reality. I am now more one with my wife than I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It's that idea of continually becoming one. And that, bear in mind, is the ideal. I do recognise as human beings, I recognise as a human being myself, that not every day has been pursued in that always becoming one. Some days you decide, actually, I'm not going to be one today. You know, but, you know, we're human beings, we don't always do it. But over the piece, the idea, the ideal, despite how we mess it up, is that for every single day of our life we are forever becoming one. And that that wife, that one, that, that ahead, that, that love, means you haven't got any time or space or interest in anybody else but just that one. And that's ahead. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, that's the most common use. Um, we do also have uh, the love between best friends. Um, because again, that can very often be the greatest love that a person experiences. There's, there's this real close relationship with, with, between friends. Uh, David and Jonathan uh, being a really good example. There's the devotion or affection for someone. Sometimes you can have a really devoted uh, servant towards his master. Uh, and, and when they say, you know, I, I will give up everything. I will stay with you forever. Uh, Exodus 21 verse 5. Uh, um, you know, Saul's affection for David at one point. King Hiram for David is said to be a heavy. You, know, you can have this incredible affection for somebody else. The tricky bit, uh, when God demands that we love our neighbour. What I love, later on uh, in the Gospels, when Jesus says you're supposed to love your neighbour, nobody says, ask me Jesus, can you define love? They say, who is my neighbour? They know full well what is meant by a heavy. And it's not, you know, put up with your neighbour, it, it, it's love, your neighbour. So in other words, you know, the, the greatest thing, you know, the greatest love possible for a human being, pour that out onto your neighbour. Um, my favourite example, though, is it is used uh, uh, by Isaac to describe his favourite food. Now, Isaac is my favourite patriarch, I'll be honest, I mentioned that a few weeks ago, and there are a number of reasons why. But Isaac is trying to uh, exaggerate at this moment in time. He, he is going way beyond uh, what he should. There's a perfectly good word for how uh, wonderful food can be. Uh, but he is turning to Esau, and he's going, Esau, I love venison, please go and get me this fine food, it's my favourite. 
And Esau is like, right, fine, man. <laughs> Off he goes, really far away, while the story then uh, continues. But um, Isaac is really over-egging the pudding, as it were. Uh, I'm sorry, food's on my mind there. Uh, <laughs> you know, but he's, he's really just going well over the top. And in actual fact, his use of this word here, when you read it, is really inappropriate. Uh, he really shouldn't be using that word here. And that's a clue that there's something going on uh, in the mind of Isaac at that point. So these are the ways in which uh, the word is used. So given that this term is used to express the strongest uh, expressions and bonds of love, you'll understand then that it also then takes on a spiritual dimension. It's no surprise uh, that alongside hesed, which is a name for the love of God, a love which we cannot comprehend, it is so vast and unbreakable, um, I love the fact that the Hebrews had to have a special word for the love of God, because if you used a human word, you've already got it wrong. <laughs> whatever you've experienced in life, uh, whatever you can imagine, is insufficient to try and describe the love of God. Separate word. But, alongside that, because it is the word that describes the most that we are capable of, uh, we do see God use it quite frequently when he describes his love for the people. The point of it is, he says, now imagine your very, very best, without flaw, without failure, that, that greatest love that it would be even possible for a human being to have. Imagine that. And more, but that's as far as you can go. So imagine that. I am no less than the best that you can imagine. Uh, uh, mindful of that, um, uh, we have Ahab as the motivation behind compassion and salvation, uh, such as in Isaiah 63, uh, verse 9. In all the afflictions, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his Ahab and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. It's an incredible text. Uh, and so, um, as well as this word which is set, set aside for just the love of God, he does very frequently try and say, okay, I'll come down to where you are. We'll work with what you can actually imagine. And he works with it. So hopefully you can see that this is the greatest love. Um, Beyond that, uh, God uh, is said to love certain things uh, passionately, such as righteousness or justice. And of course this love that we are talking about is supposed to be reciprocated. Having received this love, we are to return in love and have this greatest love, to love him above all others. We are also uh, supposed to love the Torah. Now, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, when uh, most of these texts were being written, that was actually the entire Bible at the time. And the idea is, is that within the Bible, we can see God. We can actually see Him. How could we not love that? <laughs> How could we not love a text that actually reveals Yahweh to us? And so the idea is, you, know, you love Him, so therefore you love His book that reveals Him. Uh, and so that's how it, it kind of works uh, there. And hopefully all of that, hopefully, will help us understand the strength that lies behind the opening few words of Deuteronomy 6.5. You know, we've got Yahweh, the personal name of God, the name that speaks of relationship, history, and future together. And it says now, Acheb Yahweh, you're God of gods. That's how it starts. 
I think that's quite a challenge. <laughs> you know? I, I find that quite a challenge, um, at the very least. But that's the love, incredible strength of love. I says, love him with all of your levar, what we go for as heart. Uh, I thought I'd go for something quite graphic uh, on the images. I know on Valentine's Day you've got those lovely kind of hearts, as it were, you know. Uh, but I want to really consider what is really meant uh, by this term. So, I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes um, to, to look at these, to talk to the person beside you. Uh, how do you understand heart and therefore what does it mean when you are told to love the Lord your God with all of your heart? So a couple of minutes for you get peace from me. Over to you. Okay, so uh, to be fair, most of you looking quite confident at this point. <laughs> Not too sure that's going to end, but okay. Um, so, uh, how do you understand heart? And, and therefore, really, uh, what does it mean when you're told to love the Lord your God with all of your heart? So, over to you. Good. So, um, one of the reasons that the, the, the picture is there is that it does uh, quite often refer to the, the, the organ. Um, uh, so, in the sacrificial system, if, if, if the, the valve is taken out, it literally means uh, this, this pump uh, that exists in there. Uh, although, most of the uses um, are similar to ours, where it doesn't necessarily just refer to that organ as such. Um, you know, I mean, if, if I say to my wife, I love it all my heart, I'm hoping that she knows it means a lot more than just simply that piece of muscle that, that, that you know, squeezes the blood around. You know. but, but yeah, that's a good question. Does, does it have any um, <coughs> remaining of, of being at the centre, like the heart of the matter? Oh yes, yeah, like the heart of the matter. Good, yeah. So. Um, uh, to be fair, you know, as I've already related, you know, when we use the word heart in English, it can have a little bit of, of breadth to it, um, if, if you know what I mean. Uh, the Hebrew is no less, and so you know, the very centre of the matter, or of the being. Good. Was I right in thinking that back in those days, this organ was where the emotions came now, interestingly enough, um, it was uh, more common for the emotions to be found in the bowels. <laughs> <laughs> now, some of you are thinking, hmm, I'm not too sure about that. Um, but to be fair, you've heard of the, the phrase butterflies in the stomach. Yeah? It was when you have that kind of sense of fear or impending doom. Although I tend to find it's more like a stampede of elephants rather than butterflies. But, you know, so it's not as outlandish as it seems to imagine that your emotions are found sort of in, in, in the bowels. And so uh, Lavav needs to be seen as just simply beyond just here, as it were. Um, yeah. So what does it mean then to, to love him with all of that? All of your emotions and desire? Good. Would that be fair? Love him with all your emotion, all your desire. The things that we normally, you know, associate with the heart. I can see somebody looking at me going, yeah, I know there's more to this. <laughs> <laughs> the good thing is that levav, uh, for heart, is a very common word. It's used a lot. Uh, it's used 251 times as levav, 698 times as lev, and both are usually rendered in our English translations as heart. Uh, we normally think of the heart as the seat of the emotions, as I've noted. The Hebrews and actually the Greeks tended to place the seat of the emotions down here in your bowels, as it were. Um, 
Now, I'd say that we usually associate emotions uh, with the heart. Positive ones, such as love, and negative ones. You know, your heart can store up hate. Um, So all emotions, we we very often say, uh, come, as it were, from the heart. And that's the kind of thing we see in Song of Songs. Um, You have captivated my lavav, my host, my bride. You have captivated my lavav with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Lovely. Uh, well, what is that verse? It's, of course, uh, quite graphic images of romance. Uh, the words and the phrases, uh, you know, the lavav has been captured by the, uh, it's beautiful. We get these phrases like, you know, better than wine, love. This references to lips and tongues and various things of that. The language of love, as it were, all originating from the lavav. And there's plenty of other references uh, uh, for that. So, what do we find in Lavav when it comes to the Bible? Well, yes, we do have all of these emotions. You can have uh, love, understandably, and hate and fear. Uh, when you read, um, those who have a weak Lavav are exempt from going to war, uh, that's not a reference to saying, I'm terrible, so I have a weak heart. <laughs> I have a medical condition. <laughs> it actually means uh, that their lack of courage will see a, a collapse in the morale uh, of the army. Uh, Joshua 2, 11 been a, a good example of that. Uh, So fear uh, is found in in the Levav. Your pride is to be found in your heart. Grief uh, is is there. Uh, Lust is said to come from your heart. And in each of these examples, we can readily see that emotions, uh, which we, in in English, I I think fairly associate with our heart, uh, can be seen there in the Levav. This place where we store our emotions. And that's great. However... Uh, heart does not actually fit the vast majority of times that Lavav is used. So, um, this is reflected in some of the modern translations now, uh, to, you know, when we can see that heart is not going to translate quite right, we sometimes write mind. Uh, so when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind is still Lavav of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people and they said, uh, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Now, to be fair, we have that idea in English. You know when we say we've had a change of heart? Well, we really mean a change of mind, don't we? You know, we've changed our minds. what we really mean. Um, but, you know, there could be some, some element of confusion uh, there. And so, more and more, some of the more modern translations have said, well, actually, Lavav quite often should be seen as your mind. Um, here's Ezekiel. Ezekiel 38, verse 10, um, we have uh, Lavav and thoughts in a, in a parallel. That says, Adonai Yahweh, the, the Lord Yahweh, on that day, thoughts will come into your Lavav and you'll devise an evil scheme. So quite clearly there, it's the mind uh, that is being referred to. Indeed, it is actually far more common uh, for the term to refer to your thinking, um, to have uh, an inner monologue. Uh, so, for example, the fool in his heart says, uh, there is no God. You know, that sort of inner monologue that goes on. You have your considered uh, opinions. It is where your imagination resides. I love that. 
<laughs> love the Lord your God with all of your imaginations. I, I, I just, oh, I, I just tickles me. I, I, yeah, okay, sorry. Uh, you know, your ability to plan for the future is said to be in your levav. Uh, when you are studying, it is your levav that is in action. Uh, when you are learning, you're storing things up in your levav. It is a place of wisdom. It is a place of knowledge. And so there is a problem if we kind of strict, uh, restrict it rather rigidly to heart. It clearly means a lot more. Um, Isaiah 6 verse 10 uh, is a good example. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Let them see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and be turned and healed. The levav, which can be equated with the mind and heart, uh, you know, the place where thoughts and plans and wisdom and studying take place, as well as the emotions, um, you know, it, it all exists. Uh, and, but mixing all of that can be a bit of a problem. I mean, the expression, to think with your heart, in English, means not to think at all. <laughs> it means to be led emotionally, you know, excluding all rational restraints. And so sometimes we mix them together, it, it can have a rather unfortunate uh, outcome. Lavav, though, is where rationality, reason, and understanding resides, where memory and learning are stored. Uh, let's see. Yeah, Proverbs 4.4. 4. He taught me and said to me, let your lavav hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. Now, equally. Uh, and when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Uh, so heart and clearly mind, and, and even certainly beyond that, is clearly encompassed in the idea of the Levav. However, there's more. Uh, <laughs> the Levav is also for your will, your uh, awareness, your intentions uh, all reside. Sorry. Um, this can be seen in the hardening of the heart or being unaware of some things. We have a, a Abimelech. Um, did he not say to himself, she is my sister, and she said uh, herself, he is my brother, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And so Levav is, 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 is including uh, these as well. Abimelech here had taken interest in Sarah, she had no, he had no idea that she was the wife of another man, so he's declaring himself innocent, to have acted with integrity. And so his intentions uh, are included uh, in the Levav. Um, this idea of integrity of heart, uh, or with an upright heart. So that's all included in the Levav. It means that we can't just simply replace heart with brain or mind, um, because it does include our emotions. I also love the fact that it includes where your stubbornness exists. I love that. It means, if you love the Lord to go and follow your Levav, and you happen to be an incredibly stubborn person, I'm not looking at anyone in particular, uh, but if you happen to be a really stubborn person, then you love the Lord God stubbornly. Uh, you know, it's included in there. The Levav is, is, is a huge term. Yeah, I love that. So the Levav governs our actions, which is what Christ says. You know, it's from the, the heart of man that, that actions come out. Uh, Levav is associated with love, hate, lust, panic, fear, courage, intentions, studying, grief, thinking, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and learning. <laughs> As such, 
your emotion, your intention, your rational thought, they are all included in lavav. And if I'm honest, when we rigidly stick with heart, we're missing out on actual fact, an awful lot of what it says. And I think that we struggle to come up with an easy rendering. Now, I know we're going to come back to it because at the end I have to come up with a relatively easy rendering <laughs> for, for the verse to work. We'll come back to a, a full translation of Deuteronomy 6 5. Uh, but before I can really fully define this one, I need to look at the next one as well. Okay. But I think <coughs> if I had to put it in a picture form, it'd be something like that. <coughs> Hopefully you can see it goes way beyond what we naturally think of when we say heart. Okay, I'm going to do the same again for soul. <laughs> um, so, how do you understand soul? Okay, um, uh, what, what do you think it means to love God with your soul? I, I, I don't know about you, but I find that a harder one to imagine, uh, uh, to be honest. Um, hopefully by the end of tonight you won't just have to imagine or a good understanding of what it means. But what does it actually mean when we're told to love the Lord your God with all of your soul? Slightly hard to begin, same amount of time. A couple of minutes, guys. Over to you. Okay, so I'm going to call you as it were time. I'll call it time on that. I, I love the fact that I've given you three, about three minutes, ten seconds, uh, on a question which has taken whole books to try and come up <laughs> with an answer. You know, you know, what is the soul? You know, the whole tomes, mighty tomes, are written on this, and I gave you uh, three minutes. So, how would you understand soul? And of course, more importantly, applying it to a verse, what does that mean? When you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all of your soul. We thought there was a, a non-physical aspect of, of our being. But I don't know how else we can put that. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's a tricky one because if, if you can't answer the first one really well, then you can't answer the second one. And most of us, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, th- I'm actually thinking most of us are looking at that second question thinking, oh, I don't know. Mm. Would that be fair? We're willing to wait I mean, if basically I said, I don't know why, I don't know, I'll give it, you know, it's a bit disappointing, wouldn't it, really, you know. <laughs> but anything else? Would you say that your spirit and your soul are two separate things? <laughs> yes. But I'll, I, I hope it'll become more apparent as, as it go on. Yeah. When we were created, God breathed into him and he became a living soul. Good. Is that right? Yes. So nefesh, the, the word that we're thinking so of. It's, it's, a, it's a sense of our being and our life. Okay. Yeah. I think that, that, that would be the most common understanding. Um, if, if this was uh, on that television programme, uh, QI, you know when they kind of give the obvious answer, all these alarms go off in the background. Um, one of the most common ways of answering this is, oh, that's the eternal bit of me. And then all the alarms go off. <laughs> Fortunately, none of you fell into that one, uh, as it were. Uh, again, this is actually a very common word uh, in the Old Testament. So it's not as if we're left without recourse, uh, as it were. It occurs 753 times. And it is a significant term when we begin to try and think of the afterlife and the nature of what God saves. Now, just at the outset, I have to point out that I don't have a part-time redeemer. He didn't redeem a bit of me. 
He redeems all of me. My body will be remade. I will see him with my own eyes, as Job says. Um, you know, I, I am fully redeemed. And that is a concept that a lot of Christians have forgotten. Um, now, I'll go on to that in just a moment. If you want the problems with it, and I warned you at the beginning, and I read it out in Hebrew at the outset to try and separate things out, there is a lot of pagan mythology to do with the soul. Um, so the duality of man, you know, the idea of the eternal spark, you know, and so the flesh is just some sort of substandard vessel for this divine spark. You see that in quite a number of religions, to be fair. Uh, and they get separated into death, and that's an idea from, from Greek pagan mythology. Um, as it were. The pagans believed that the soul would be separated out of death and live as a shade in the underworld, as we see, for example, in the poems of Homer. The idea was Christianized uh, by the early church. You can be seen in some of the works, such as uh, Origen, Augustine, St. Gregory of Nicaea. Uh, you do see that idea kind of permeating into their thinking. But of course it did. Their entire culture thought like that. It was very difficult to think outside of that particular bubble. Uh, based on the institutes, Calvinism sometimes, some versions of it do adopt the idea that sin is in the flesh of the believer and is left behind at death. Uh, actually, that's in contrast to Calvin's commentaries, uh, just, <laughs> just to give some balance there. Uh, but there's this idea of this dualism, and we see it in some uh, forms of Catholic theology. We can even see it, uh, as it were, in the Westminster Confession of Faith. The bodies of men, after death, return to dust and see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them, and at some later point uh, are given a body. Now, with the palpable tension in the room. <laughs> Whatever you think of when it comes to soul, whether you have uh, uh, this notion, whether you have a really pagan idea, whether you have something that is actually quite a wide spectrum within Christianity as to what it means to have a soul, whatever you think, that's not what the Hebrews thought. And so the reason I read it out in Hebrew at the beginning was, I need you to suspend that entirely. Because the Hebrew people had no concept of a soul. There was just simply you. There wasn't a time that you would not have a body. When you were resurrected, you had a body. Daniel, Job, David, you know, all of them. Yeah. But there would have been that time between when you, when you died and the resurrection of the body took place. Yes. You know, so there, there, is, there is that kind of interim time. So, yes. for instance, Ecclesiastes, when he talks about at the end getting old and things failing, and he eventually concludes it by saying, and the body turns to dust. Yes. And the, and the soul returns to God who made it. In fairness, for the slight caveat, he doesn't use nephesh there, which is our word for soul. Um, uh, and he is talking about return, the, the, the return to God. Although, after fact, uh, when in Genesis it says um, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, you return, it literally says you return to God. So he uses the same physiology about your body there, um, as it were. But if you want to actually look at, at, at you know, the, the idea of the eschatology, the, the, the end times, etc., Daniel is, is, is maybe the best example of that. The idea that you go to sleep and you wake up later on with the body. Um, there's no concept of you floating away and playing a harp somewhere in, in, in some sort of heaven, uh, as it were. There is, there is nothing. You know, if you don't have a body, you're not conscious, you're not alive. That is the, 
the consistent thought of the Old Testament. Now, we may disagree with that. We may think something different from that. The problem is when we then bring that into our Old Testament. Because then when we read this verse, which says, Love the Lord God with all of your soul, we're already centuries and millennia later <laughs> applying a concept that they were not meaning to imply. In other words, I really care about what this text actually says. <laughs> and not what we will automatically and naturally read it as when we read that word soul. Yes? What was going on with um, soul talking to yeah, uh, <laughs> there is a lot. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot. The Witch of Endor which is, 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 is brilliant. Um, you've got to remind that she didn't expect that to work. She is freaked out. She did not expect that to actually happen. Um, so clearly it's quite, quite unusual. And it's clearly a thing that he should not have done, uh, as, as it were. But we have no idea of what it is. Is that Samuel? Is it a, a message from God? I mean, there, there are more books and opinions as to what that could possibly be. Uh, but clearly, um, it was a thing that should not have happened. It was a, an unusual thing, uh, as it were. Um, certainly, in terms of you know, what we can expect to happen to us type thing, uh, you look at you know, the, the general idea of the afterlife in the Old Testament. Yeah. <coughs> um, most commonly referred to as sleep. Um, and I, I don't think we need to make it any more complicated than that. Uh, uh, to be fair. Yeah? What about this when the inquiry has to take a Yes, uh, times with um, Moses and Elijah. I like, I like Elijah in particular because he has taken off to heaven and we have no idea what that means <laughs> in terms of you know, what happens to him. But his body is gone. It's, you know, everything is gone. Uh, we have no idea. We, we think quite possibly that he is transformed, almost like what's going to happen to us in the, in the future. That's one possibility. Moses too, his body is, 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 is missing. Sorry. Yeah. There's also that example where Paul says that he was caught up to heaven, whether, whether it was in the body or apart from the body. Yes. Only God knows. Yeah, and, and to be fair, most of the time in, in our text we are warned that it is a vision uh, that is being given and not necessarily you know, actually being in places. Uh, when John uh, writes Revelation, we're not suggesting that he was taken to heaven physically, um, because he he writes quite clearly, you know, I saw. And same with actually most of the prophets when have these visions. Isaiah sees God in the temple, it's a vision. Uh, you know, Ezekiel sees that God is a wheel within a wheel and it's a vision. Um, and so it's a fair comment to, to say, well, actually, there's a, a separation between what actually happens to you and some of the, the prophetic visions that happen. I think for me, the key thing is to look at what the Hebrews intended to say when they said nephesh, rather than what we normally bring with us when we hear the word soul. Does that make sense? And I, I'm trying to be a pains to say, actually, there's actually quite a lot of variety as to what we think happens and, and to you know, where different Christians will, will, will kind of land that. But all of that needs to be suspended. And instead, we just simply need to look at what the Hebrew actually says, if that makes sense. And I'm very happy to continue talking about what happens in the afterlife using both Old and New Testament later on, if, 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 if you wish. Um, but you see, the main problem that I have, the biggest problem that I have, is that nephesh does not mean soul. To be quite blunt. Um, nephesh, uh, well, at first it literally means breath and life. Uh, we alluded to that with, with, with Adam. Um, Adam has nephesh breathed into him, and at that point he becomes a living nephesh. Now, Adam has life breathed into him, and at that point he becomes a living nephesh. 
the text clearly states that he is a nefesh, not that he has a nefesh. So it's not like some sort of divine spark being put into the clay. It is that he is this living uh, and breathing thing. Yahweh Elohim formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living nefesh. Now, nefesh apart from being breath quite often, is often very, uh, described as being your flesh and your blood. Uh, and this, this happens uh, more often than we, we might think. Uh, Genesis 9.4 connects nefesh not just with breath, uh, which we do see. You know, breath in Adam, uh, breath in um, 1 Kings 17, when the nefesh of the boy goes back into him, when, when Elijah prays, you know, and it's, it's, it's meaning he's breathing again. Uh, but it can mean your tangible things, your flesh and your blood. Uh, so we can have the literal blood spilled and the animal dies. It has the metaphorical sense of flesh and blood when talking about children. Um, you know, I could describe my children as my flesh and blood. It has the same uh, use there. It describes people, their physical being. Uh, so when Abram returns from the raid against the, the kings, he brings back these people. You know, their nefesh uh, arrives there. Their, their physical uh, being uh, comes back. I think that the main problem is that even before you leave the book of Genesis, it's quite clear that nefesh refers to something quite tangible rather than something ephemeral, you know, something we can't quite define. I think a particular difficulty in actually thinking of nefesh as a soul will be found in texts like uh, Leviticus 24.17 because what happens is you have uh, anyone who murders a human being will have his nefesh put to death. Now if you're thinking of soul, I mean, how, how do you put a soul to death? You know, putting your nefesh to death means, means your, your, your physical being is, is put to death. The issue is compounded when we continue. We're, we're told again in Leviticus Wounding an animal's nefesh uh, requires that you replace it with a nefesh. Uh, and the idea is if you, if you injure an animal, you have to replace it with an animal that can actually be physically whole. And no one uh, seriously suggests uh, when the text uh, says, uh, you know, when you damage a nefesh, a nefesh is required. No one is seriously suggesting that if you emotionally damage an animal, your soul is required of you. I mean, no one seriously considers that as an option. The book of Numbers talks about a nephesh as being a corpse. So it's not even alive. But the, the bit, the physical bit, the physical remains. Clearly not the soul. That's like the very opposite, surely. I mean, a dead body is surely the opposite of how we imagine soul. However we're imagining it in the room, surely the corpse is the opposite of a soul. Now, added to that, the Psalms tend to place nefesh very often in parallel with my flesh uh, to give the same idea that they are, are, are similar. Um, Psalm 63 verse 1 uh, being a good example. My point is, and in actual this is going to really help us when it comes back to our verse, flesh, blood, breath. Uh, they are all tangible things. The things that you can see. If you don't believe in it, you can see your breath. Go outside just now. <laughs> Give it a couple of puffs and come back. You know, These are the tangible things. The reason that I, I, I resist soul and whatever we're thinking in our heads with that is that that's not, that wasn't even on the radar of our Old Testament writers. So even if you're right, you have to leave it alone. And think, what do they mean? And so we have here the physical things. Uh, very often they, they, they talk about these are the things that if you lost them, your life would come to an end. If you lost blood, if you lost your breath, if you no longer breathed, you would lose your life. 
And so whilst levav is not enough when we say heart, actually using soul can really lead us down uh, the wrong way uh, when it comes to nefesh. Yeah. Um, I should say, uh, and, and this is partly where I kind of got to in the, in the discussion, uh, there are an awful lot of texts that support the idea of, of, of sleeping, uh, you know, and, and the idea of being resurrected with the body. That's very much uh, in the Old Testament. I only had space for two of them. Uh, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt, Daniel 12, 2. Uh, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. Uh, you who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your Jews, the Jew of life in the earth, shall give birth to the dead. Uh, my point is that the separation of the soul and the body is an alien concept to the Old Testament. And so when we read this, we're told to love the Lord your God, not with something you cannot possibly understand, but with everything you can actually see and touch. Um, so, uh, here we go, uh, God will ransom my nefesh from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. And it's that idea that, you know, without your body, you are not whole. You're only a whole person as a person, as it were. So, how do I describe this? Well, in order to bit better understand it, Levav is uh, all of your emotions, all of your thoughts, all of your intent. You remember the list that I went through. Nefesh is really your breath and your blood and your flesh. So how do I try and... Uh, put that together. Well, for us nowadays, I would say that this is the, the physical and non-physical. I describe it as your hardware and your software. Uh, you know, your, your nefesh is your hardware, uh, your lavab is your software. The software is what intrinsically makes you, you. That's your lavab. If you were like, downloaded into another body, you were still you. you know, that's your lavab. But your body, your, your actual physical existence is your nefesh. And actually, there's a parallel that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> love him with everything that you are. Love him with every breath you have. Every last ounce of strength in your body. You see, you see how the, the two of them work quite well uh, as a parallel. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got, I've got one more to go. So, so. <laughs> Let me ask you, just, 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 just to feedback to me um, here. What do we mean by strength or might? What does it mean to love the Lord of God with all of your strength or might? What, what does that mean? What you can do. Oh, I like that. What you can do. Yeah. And your actions. Your actions. How about character? Character? Oh, your character. Isn't that the earlier one? Yeah. This is uh, Miot. Um It can be kind of uh, overlooked. You know, we are to ahead the Lord our God with all of our levav, all of our nefesh. And you're thinking, is there anything left? <laughs> I mean, surely that's kind of covered everything that I am. You know, what else could there be? Well, uh, this is a word that is used uh, over three of the times. I suppose I'd describe it as completely, to the nth degree, as it were. Uh, it includes all of your might, but it also includes all of your potential. I love the fact that they have a word which basically means love the Lord to God with everything you could be. I love that. You know, I, I, I find that quite remarkable, as it were. Um, it, it very often has a, a, it's used as an adverb sometimes to give a sense of extreme, you know, the vehemence of Cain's attitude towards Abel, and he really uh, hates him. Uh, the waters, 
that utterly covered the earth, you know, means a real strength in that. Um, the spectacular wealth of Abram, the unsurpassed wisdom of Solomon, the excessive sin of Sodom. You know, this word is used to really talk about quite a, a, a broad and extreme thing. It's a term that in our idiom, I suppose we could say, to, to the nth degree, or as I like to say, given it laldi. Um, you know, that, that kind of sense to it, you know. Um, it's not ever really translated as strength except from this verse. Um, um, it is a term of absolute. And God saw everything that he had made and behold it was me'od tov it was absolutely complete and perfect and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day quite quite an extreme term and I, I love that we have this now I mean when we talk about strength we, we, in English, we, we, we use that word with a variety of meanings. Uh, you know, you can be physically strong, and, and that's great, but we do also mean uh, mentally strong, spiritually strong. You know, strength itself can have quite a variety of meanings. And so this term includes, includes all of that, but it, 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 it goes way beyond um, uh, just to simply, you know, the, the strength that you possess. It's, it's the sense of loving the Lord of God just so overwhelmingly and absolutely and entirely with everything that you have, all of the strength that you have, mental, spiritual, physical, everything, now and forever, what you could be. And you've got to bear in mind, what you could be is restricted to the Almighty God that you're in partnership with. Now imagine that. What you could be is in the hands of God. There isn't really a limit to that. And so how do I translate this verse? I hear you asking. <laughs> you're thinking, well, Ian, you're running out of time. <laughs> You've told me how difficult this word is to translate. You've told me how, how much there is behind that. How on earth do you translate that verse? And again, I hope you actually have a lot of sympathy for the poor people who had to translate for us. Uh, you know, they're trying their very best and they're trying to incorporate something which is just huge. And they're trying to give us a sense of loving God with everything. And they're trying their very best, having had an hour and a half to speak to you, however, and explain what I'm going to put up, how would I translate it? Well, actually, let me ask you, how would you translate it? Having been told all of this all night, how would you, you are allowed to say, I don't know, that, that is uh, permissible, but how would you translate a verse like this? If you were the guy or the, the woman sitting there, having to translate it and put it in a Bible for people to read, what would you write? I quite like this definition actually, they do what you can. Um, it kind of reminds me of when Jesus spoke with the disciples for the woman that washed his hair. He said she did what she could. Yes. And I I previously had counseling where it said, look, if you feel you're falling short, just do what you can, do what you can. Yes. And that would be enough. The grace does the rest. I think it is incredibly important that we recognize that this is, first of all, a reciprocal action, first of all. So God has loved us, and we are to respond. I mean, it's not as if we have to, you know, do this on our own. I love the fact that not only do we respond, we can only respond because God enables us to respond. I think these are really two really important caveats to, to include. Because you can get even to the end of tonight and still think somehow... Oh, I've just got to try harder. Um, and that, that's not the answer. The answer is to allow God to do more in you. To open yourself up more to him. 
That's, that's the answer. And this is the key to it. You see, if that's a rule, all you've got to do, X amount of Bible reading or X amount of prayer a day, you know, if you do it like that, it doesn't work. But if you love him and you want to spend time with him, and you love him so completely, and you find that, just like all those examples that you said, you know, loving your child, loving your wife, and those loves that are there to grow, not as a kind of a static thing. It's not as if you're supposed to have, now you should have that perfect love on day one. <laughs> and if you don't, God's going to get you. you know, that, that, that's not what it's about. But we do have something to aim towards. Now, I would probably go with something like this. Now, really love. Remember, Achet? Yahweh, your God of gods, with everything that makes you human. Love him with everything that you are. I said earlier on, if you're a stubborn person, love him stubbornly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Love him with everything that you are. I love the fact that God uh, is quite willing to use all of our faults to his glory, as well as all of our strengths. Love him with all that you are. And with every living breath. That was the best I could do with Nefesh, I'm afraid. You know? Every last breath that you have belongs to him. And do it utterly and completely. That's what we're called to do. Um, the, the way that I very often describe it, if you've, if you've ever heard me speak about the afterlife, you will understand that I have a very strong aversion to the idea of ticking boxes, of, of completing a checklist, uh, and that instead it is very much about love. And I do firmly believe that when I see him in glory, uh, I will be standing before God, and he will have two questions for me. Again, those of you who've heard me speak with this should know what these two questions are by now. Uh, but essentially, when God looks at me, he's going to say, did you love me? Now, I will be able to say, yes, I did. Absolutely. A hundred percent. But I would have to be honest and say, but, you know, I wish I'd been a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> you know, because we are the people who live in, in fits and starts. But yeah, I loved you. And he'll also ask, did you love my people? And obviously Jesus goes on to that when he talks about loving your neighbor. <laughs> and uh, I always, you know, half joke uh, when I say, you know, you know, I can't turn to God and say, God, you know, do you see the state of them? And I couldn't possibly have loved them, surely, you know. But the wonderful thing about this love is that we love God so utterly and completely that it is supposed to spill over into loving each other. And the core of everything that we're called to be is to love completely. And this is the start of it, to love God in our fits and starts, uh, to love him with everything that we are, um, with everything that we could be, to love him utterly and completely. That is the beating heart of the Old Testament. That, I believe, is the beating heart of the Bible. I believe that is the beating heart of what we're about just now. And I think that for all of our faults and feelings, which I believe there are many, um, if we love God, um, people see that. I think loving God is the most effective form of evangelism. I think that loving God is the most effective form of encouragement to each other. I think that loving God, and I'm speaking from a completely biased and self-interested point of view, but I do believe that loving God is the best way to preach. I think it is the core of who we're supposed to be. Jesus thought so. So I'm quite happy to go with him on that one. And so this wonderful and incredible text, Love the Lord to God, Really love him. Really, really love him. With everything that makes you human. With every living breath. Do it utterly and completely. And 
aim for that to be, you know, your life. How awesome it would be if at the end of your life, on your tombstone, this was written by you. <laughs> I'll be honest. I would settle for that to say there was a moment in his life when. <laughs> I would settle for that. You know? But that's what we're called to do. And what I really love, and I think it's really important we have this, this balance, that is not to be done in our own strength. That is because the love of God has affected us. It's because we have shamad, we've allowed the words of God to go deep down inside of us and to change us, to make us capable of this. This is not a word of condemnation, this is a word of inspiration as to what we could be in the hands of a loving, powerful, almighty God. And when you understand it like that, you should be leaving here the weekend of skipping your step, <laughs> as opposed to being weighed down by something which would otherwise be impossible. Thank you.